This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri land. This is a special episode of Full Story on the results of the Victorian election. It's Sunday, the 27th of November. Victorian state correspondent Benita Kolovos has been at the Premier's election party, and she's here to explain how Victorians voted and what it all means. But first, here's what you need to know. The Andrews government will form government after this election. Labor has won a third term of government in Victoria under Premier Dan Andrews. Friends, hope always defeats hate. The result raises questions about Liberal leader Matthew Guy's political future. We've got a lot of work to do. We know that. But we also know that our time in the sun will come again. Thank you very much. Just as in this year's federal election, we saw big swings away from both major parties towards minor parties and independents. The Greens looked set to pick up a number of inner-city Melbourne seats, helped in part by Liberal Party preferences. It's been incredible to see the results coming in for seats like Footscray, Preston, Pascovale, Albert Park. And the Teals continue to expand their influence on Australian politics, picking up at least one seat in the outer metro district of Mornington. I mean, we didn't like what the two parties were doing federally and we don't like what they're doing at a state level, so it makes sense. So, Benita, the polls were strongly in Labor's favour coming into this election, but the results weren't as strong as the so-called Dan slide that we saw in 2018. What does tonight's result tell us about what Victorians voted for? Everyone in Labor expected that they were going to lose some ground on 2018. It was quite a you know, resounding win for the party. They won seats they'd never won before, and everyone expected, you know, going into a third term in government, something a lot of governments don't get to do, that they were going to lose some seats, lose ones that they won that they never thought they'd win and, you know, expect a little bit of a loss in the wake of the pandemic. But I think what this shown is that most people did support the government during the pandemic. It was a really crappy time, but we did what we had to do sort of mentality. And, you know, he came out and his main speech was all about, you know, making the hard calls, making decisions that aren't popular but are what, what is right. If anything, this election result was kind of a vindication of his response to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, Benita, this was Victoria's first election since the COVID pandemic first began. And as you say, it was kind of seen as a referendum on the state's world record long lockdowns over the last couple of years that we've had. Um, You know, we saw the Liberal Party capitalise on some of the anger that's still in the community about those lockdowns. They ran attack ads that were directed at Dan Andrews personally. It featured footage of anti-lockdown protesters from last year. Remember when we hit the streets to protest against Daniel Andrews' world record lockdowns? We also saw independent MP Catherine Cumming issue a violent threat against Andrews. I joined the angry Victorian party for one reason, to make Daniel Andrews turn into red mist. What do you think this result shows about how great that anger actually is in the community at the moment? Is it as broad as these um, candidates would have us believe? Well, you mentioned those anti-lockdown protests and I was thinking about them this evening as I was heading to the Labor campaign event. 
And, you know, at the time, I think Victoria had passed its 80% vaccination rate. People were, you know, starting to move on with their lives, seeing their loved ones and friends and family for the first time. Um, But there were these people protesting the pandemic, protesting vaccination mandates, the government's legislation for, you know, pandemic-specific laws. And I think this is kind of a, a similar sort of thing, right? They were a very loud group of people but they were not the majority. And I think the Liberals thought that there was going to be this real anger at the Premier. You know, when it gets to November, there's going to be an anti-Dan sentiment and they did not consider another possibility that maybe people were, you know, not happy. It was a really crappy time, but it was what had to be done. Although Mm. I think it is worth noting too, we have seen some significant swings away from Labor in the north, um, in, you know, some outer suburban areas that probably were worst affected by lockdowns in terms of um, the health and economic impacts. People that maybe were in insecure work or had jobs where you actually had to go in, you couldn't do them from home. So there is that there, but I don't think it was this big movement that the Liberals thought it was. I mean, beyond Labor's response, which was sometimes unpopular to the pandemic, you know, it's also weathered a number of scandals. Uh, they've been they've been branch stacking allegations. Senior ministers have resigned. There's currently an anti-corruption watchdog that's IBAC in Victoria, an IBAC inquiry into grants to a Labor-linked union, which is reportedly directly examining Dan Andrews' conduct. Why do you think none of these scandals have sort of stuck to the party at this election? It's a really interesting one. I think with branch stacking, it's it's quite complicated. Mm. I don't think most Victorians know what it means. You can't really have on the tip of your tongue a definition for what it is. It's, you know, amassing influence between the party. And I think there's this expectation, you know, people don't view politicians as being the most um, full of integrity. They kind of go, oh, you know, that's that's what they do. Maybe there's an element of that. Mm. I think back to red shirts that... Um, that scandal before the 2018 election about Labor, you know, misusing um, parliamentary funds to pay for campaign staff. And that was also a kind of confusing scandal in the sense that it took a lot to explain what it is that they were doing that was wrong. I think that's part of it. And when you look at, for example, opposition leader Matthew Guy before the 2018 election, he had that um, I think it was a lobster dinner with an alleged mobster figure. That was easy to understand. Yeah. Were there were there any big surprises for you at tonight's election? I don't know if it was a surprise. Um, the Greens have done really well. They've picked up Northcote and they've picked up Richmond, two mm. inner city seats that, you know, for years now we've seen the demographics shift. Um, the Greens have been running real concerted campaigns in both of those seats um, for a very long time. Like they've been going for months, if not years in Richmond in particular. So I always had an expectation that they would go. Uh, Labor fought really hard, in particular Northcote, in the final weeks of the campaign. I think the Premier was there three times in 10 days. So maybe they thought that they were still close there. Um, But I think the surprising element to the Green success has been, you're looking at the moment, I think Pascoe Vale, Preston, Footscray, Albert Park, we don't know yet what's going to happen, but they could get another seat on top of the two that they've won. So I think that's quite a great result for them. So, Benita, how much do you put the green success at this election down to, you know, uh, more progressive voters across the board? And how much of it is due to Liberals preferencing the Greens in in a number of seats? The Greens leader, Samantha Ratnam, will say that 
it's got nothing to do with liberal preferences. They got there on their own in seats like Northcote and Richmond. However, it might have an impact in those ones that are still a bit too close to call, particularly somewhere like Albert Park. But we're at the point that we don't really know how those preferences are flowing. We'll need a couple more days to see see if that was the case. But the question is how many people are following a how-to-vote card anyway and particularly if you're a you know, diehard Liberal voter and you see that it's got Greens above Labor, are you really going to follow that? Mm. So I think there's a lot of talk about how-to-vote cards, but do they really have that much of an impact on the election? I'm not sure. Mm. I've seen some independents do really well. Again, still too close to call, but Mornington, she's looking good there, Dr. Kate Lardner and um, Hawthorne, which is Melissa Lowe. Yep, those are those, the so-called teal candidates. That yeah, so both yeah. of them are backed by um, Simon Holmes, the court's Climate 200 group. Um, that'll go a long way in determining whether this is, you know, the teals doing so well federally was because of a specific set of circumstances, you know, Scott Morrison in action on climate change, whether it is a bigger political movement. But, yes, yeah, still really early days in those seats and same with those other additional ones that could maybe go green. I think many people expected the Teals to do much better in Victoria given how successful they were in the federal election in blue ribbon seats like Kuyong. What do you make of this? I think the Teals did so well federally because it was Scott Morrison and the Liberal government that was in charge. Obviously, there was inaction on climate change, you know, the bushfires, Hawaii. You can't say the same thing here because we have a Labor government. It's it's not the Liberals that are in government. I think the Labor government are acting on climate change here, like, you know, the SEC as an announcement, right? That's massive for, you know, the future of renewable energy in Victoria. So you can't... Mm it's hard to criticise the Liberals when they're not the ones in government and not acting on climate change because they can't because they're not in government. So I think that might have played a little role in it. It's much less clearer political narrative, I guess, to spin. And I think too, it's just a reflection that state politics doesn't have as high a profile as federal politics. Mm. To cut through would have been a lot harder at a state level versus federal. I don't think people know their local state member as well as they might know their local federal member. You know, Josh Frydenberg, for example, there wasn't one Liberal candidate that Attil was going up against that had that sort of profile here in Victoria. I think there are challenges doing it at a state level. I think it'll be really interesting to look at what happens in New South Wales where there is a Liberal government in charge, although, you know, they are doing a lot more on the climate front will that play a different dynamic than here in Vic where it is a Labor government? Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the future of the Liberals in a moment, but first let's take a quick look back at how we got to this point, Benita. What were the biggest policies of both major parties that were on offer during this campaign? I think for Labor, they've centred much of this campaign around reviving the State Electricity Commission or the SEC. And for people that don't know what that is, in, I think, the late 1990s, Jeff Kennett privatised all of Victoria's electricity assets and that was under the banner of the SEC. So everything was government-owned and operated. Now Labor's saying they'll spend a billion dollars to bring it back, introduce renewable energy projects under that. That's kind of been the centrepiece of their whole campaign, along mm. with like free, you know, expanding free TAFE, building new hospitals and schools. As for the Liberals, they announced a $2 public transport cap on public transport fares in Melbourne. 
They announced free lunches for public schools, things like that to, you know, help alleviate the cost of living. But I think their main one was their commitment to scrap the suburban rail loop or they don't say scrap, they say shelve, um, and then put all that money into hospitals. So, I mean, Labor really offered some major new policy ideas while the Liberals were more focused on arguing that a third Andrews term needed to be avoided at all costs. In retrospect, how effective were each of these strategies? See, I was a little bit nervous for Labor with the SEC because obviously people of a particular age would know what it is, but a lot of younger voters didn't have that connection to it. Um, But I think they've overcome that by talking about renewable energy. I think later in the campaign, they announced a lot of stuff around women's health, women's health clinics, doing a trial to allow um, women to, you know, get the script for the contraceptive pill from a pharmacy rather than getting a GP. So I think that kind of weighted, you know, evened it out for them. As with the Liberals, there just wasn't, looking back now, a, a clear kind of narrative other than like loathing the Premier. There was no vision of what they wanted to do, where to for Victoria from here. The idea was we just can't keep going the way we're going. I just don't think that resonated with voters. Mm. We've talked a little bit about some of the parallels that this election had with the recent federal election when Labor took government after a decade in opposition. How did the Victorian Liberal strategy in this state race compare with their federal counterparts? I did mention that there was that whole anti-Dan thing that they tried doing in Victoria, the federal Liberals. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they ran really hard with that here. There was a lot of um, talk about a gas-led, you know, turbocharging our gas here in Victoria, which is very similar to the gas-led recovery that Scott Morrison was promising at the federal poll. They managed not to delve into the culture wars as much as Morrison and the federal Liberals did. But there was still that element there. There was the choice of preferencing candidates above Labor that were from micro or fringe or extreme sort of parties. Mm. Uh, I just I think that there was still that element there and the Liberal brand obviously isn't um, working at the moment in Victoria. Mm. And News Corp had a crack at reviving some of the conspiracy theories around a back injury that Dan Andrews sustained last year by publishing a photo of the set of stairs he fell down in a front page splash. Well, maybe. Well, I don't know. What are you going to interview the stairs next? Like, people can go as low as they want. I'm not coming there with them. There were also a number of scandals in this campaign. How much do you think all of these sorts of controversies during the campaign influenced voters? It was a really ugly campaign. Even the Premier admitted it himself in an interview with me. If I'm honest, I don't think it's influenced the campaign. I think that this has shown that that sort of, you know, Murdoch media influence on elections isn't there anymore. Like they ran almost every single day a negative front page about the government. That hasn't cut through. Turning now to the future of Victoria, this is a historic third term for Labor. What will be the first priorities for the Andrews government? I think there's a lot of healing to be done post the pandemic. The Premier made a point in his speech today about governing for all Victorians, even those that didn't vote for him. I think that'll have to be addressed by this government. 
coming out of the pandemic, there's also been effects on our health system. Like, you know, healthcare workers are exhausted, got, you know, issues with triple zero, ambulance delays, hospital overcrowding. That will all be, you know, an urgent priority for the government. And they've, they've said they've already started working on that. And then the government's debt is massive. Like we're talking about, I think, the Liberal line was it's more than New South Wales, Queensland and Tassie combined. I think they're talking about having a billion-dollar surplus in the forward estimates, but I think budget repair and being a little bit more fiscally responsible, that's something that's going to have to happen in this term as well. Mm. We saw the Treasurer Tim Pallas earlier tonight on the ABC saying that if returned to power, the government would need to turn its attention to a budget surplus as quickly as they could. And he expected that 2025 to 26 was when this could happen. What are some of the ways we could see Labor deal with this debt? So they've talked about privatising. Well, they don't, they don't like to call it privatising, but essentially privatising part of Vic Roads and getting that money and putting it into what they're calling a future fund. and. I think part of Tim Pallas's plan that he announced on Thursday was to start, you know, using that fund to start to pay off debt. I think debt will be in that year like $125 billion or a quarter of our GDP. So that will have to be a priority for them. Mm. Benita, you've also written about a number of really serious issues in Victoria that just weren't mentioned by either side during this campaign. There's things like bail reform, housing, as you mentioned earlier, the future management of the pandemic. What do you think could happen in some of these areas under the next Andrews government? I think bail reform will have to happen. I had an interview with the Attorney General, Jacqueline Symes, and she said she had a lot of unfinished business she wanted to achieve in another term. And one of those things was bail reform because there are so many people in custody that haven't been found guilty of a crime yet. And it's, you know, predominantly affecting women, Indigenous people, um, people with disabilities, young people. I think it was risky to look at close to an election because then it could have led to a law and order campaign, but that will have to be an urgent priority for the Mm -hmm. government. Well, turning now back to the Liberals for a moment, this was Matthew Guy's second go at contesting a state election as the Liberal leader. What's next for him, do you think? It was really interesting, obviously, pre the result, was having a lot of talks with um, Liberals, you know, MPs, strategists, people within the party. They didn't think necessarily that they were going to get the whole way, but they thought they'd probably get to where they were in 2014 or 2018. Well, you know, maybe some outer suburban seats would fall their way as well, that maybe that could, you know, keep Matthew in the position. But um, from the conversations I've been having tonight, that's not happening. I think it's going to require a complete reset. I think you you can't come back from two losses like this in a row. Mm. If there is a Liberal spill in Victoria, who are some of the possible contenders? It's a very good question. Um, Brad Batten has had a go previously. He might want to put his hand up again. Ryan Smith. Um, there's a bit of talk about um, Matt Bark, who's an upper house MP, possibly moving into, let's say that Matthew Guy decides to leave parliament. Matthew Bark lives in Matthew Guy's seat. Maybe he can go there and then have a tilt as opposition leader. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk about maybe John Pesuto taking on that role, but it looks like he might not get up in Hawthorne. The priority there is hanging on to that seat before there's any talk of leadership. And, you know, he was one of those sort of moderate, small L liberals 
that would have sent the party in a different direction. So without them in the parliament, where will they go? (laughs) The federal Liberal Party is still doing a lot of learning about, you know, where their base is, what they stand for after the last election. They lost some blue ribbon Victorian seats to the Teals then as well. We've now seen the Liberals' third successive loss in Victoria. What does this result mean for the future of the Victorian Liberal Party? How could they start to um, repair after this decision? It's an interesting one because following the federal result, there was a lot of talk about maybe we stop focusing on the inner city, these people, they're too left or they're too progressive or, you know, there's not enough for the work that's required. There's not enough gain from it. Maybe we should be looking out to the outer suburbs. But the thing with the outer suburbs, right, is that some of these seats that did have swings that are Labor seats have such massive margins that that's such a long-term strategy for the Liberals. Like you can chip away at those margins for years before you manage to turn a red seat blue. So I, I don't think that they can sacrifice inner city seats for outer seats. I think they're going to have to find a way to have broad appeal for all voters. Um, I think uh, when you look at the Andrews government, right, there's something there for everyone, whether you're a construction worker or a health worker, that they manage to find these policies that can appeal to people from all different walks of life. And I think that the Liberals are going to have to start thinking that way too, because they cannot afford to sacrifice certain seats for others. Thanks to Victorian state correspondent Benita Kolovos for her time. You can find her analysis of the Victorian election result on theguardian.com, recapping the lessons that we can take away from these polls. I also recommend you go back and listen to Full Story's interview with senior journalist Margaret Simons about the rise and enduring appeal of Premier Dan Andrews. I'll put a link to both of those on the Full Story page. This episode was produced by myself and Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of Full Story today was Molly Glassie. I'm Jane Lee, and I'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story for you on Monday. Catch you then.